Consider the book of Acts. It's not a gospel. It's not an epistle. So what is it? It's a story, a story of Christ at work in the early church. We're going to dig deep into that story in just a few minutes. Plus, you don't want to miss God's geography lesson. It's an insightful devotional coming your way. And of course, we'll bring you all the top news stories out of the Middle East, all on this program we call The Land and the Book from Moody Radio. Welcome. I'm John Geiger with our Land and the Book host, Dr. Charlie Dyer. Good to connect with you, Charlie. John, it's always great to be talking to you about Israel. And much to talk about again as we look at our list of current events for this week, Yair Lapid's mandate to form a new government expired this past Wednesday. So what happened? Does Israel have a new government? You know, that's a great question, John. I just wish I had a great answer to go along with it. Uh, as we get ready to record this segment here on Wednesday, Yair Lapid was still struggling to put together a coalition. The negotiations and the bartering and the bickering were all going down right to the wire. Hmm. Lapid thought he had a breakthrough Sunday night when Naftali Bennett announced his party would join the coalition. They would have a razor-thin majority in the Knesset. It would be the most diverse coalition in Israel's history, though a better description might be the most unwieldy. It would be made up of the largest number of parties ever in an Israeli government, spanning Israel's political spectrum from far right to far left, from religious to secular. And corralling all those different blocks is what proved to be the major stumbling block. As the negotiations dragged on, the different factions argued over the distribution of ministry portfolios. Two of those battles still have the potential of sinking the coalition. The first is over who will serve on the committee that appoints judges. Lapid had promised the slot to the left-wing Labor Party, but the right-wing Yamina Party insisted it be given that slot. And the second battle is over demands being made by the Islamist Ra'am Party. Those demands could push the right-wing parties out of the coalition. All these tensions serve as a warning of what is likely to happen should this coalition get formed. Once the honeymoon is over and the different factions begin to push for legislation demanded by their respective constituencies, it could easily fracture. Hmm. I, w I was reminded Abraham Lincoln once said, a house divided against itself cannot stand. And he was actually quoting the words of Jesus in Mark 3.25. But the truth of Jesus' statement is just as applicable for what's happening in Israel today as it was in the days of Lincoln. The only thing uniting this coalition is their passionate desire to force Netanyahu out of the prime minister's office. But if they succeed in doing that, they then need to get down to the hard task of trying to unite the nation and move it forward. And the problem is each party has a different vision of what Israel's future ought to be. To succeed, they need to set aside their egos and the promises they made to their constituents during the election and be willing to compromise. And based on the struggles just to put a coalition together, I'm not sure how successful they'll be. Well, Israel's election process might be messy, but at least it's democratic. The same can't be said for other countries in the region. Tell us about the recent election processes in some of the surrounding countries, Charlie. Yeah, we've talked before about the Palestinian Authority, where new elections were announced only to be postponed yet again. You know, President Abbas is currently serving the 16th year of his four-year term. And the last election for the Palestinian Legislative Council took place in 2006. That's 15 years ago. Uh, some of the other countries in the region have actually held elections, but the process is a sham with predetermined outcomes. Uh, for example, 
Just over a week ago, Syria held a presidential election and, surprise, surprise, Bashar Assad was elected to a fourth seven-year term. Supposedly, he was selected by 95% of those casting votes, and the turnout was said to be an impressive 79% of voters. Now, no vote was held in the areas of the country controlled by rebels, where at least 8 million Syrians live, nor were any of the 5 million Syrian refugees living in neighboring countries allowed to vote. And the vote count and outcome for those who did vote can't be independently verified. And if you think Syria is bad, listen to what's happening in Iran. People are permitted to register and run as candidates in the presidential election, but each person must then be approved by the 12-member Guardian Council, hmm. a powerful group of Islamic clerics, before their name can actually be placed on the ballot. Wow. This year, 590 people registered to run, <laughs> but the Guardian Council only approved seven of them. Hmm. They blocked most of the individuals who would have had the largest potential following, including the former Speaker of Parliament, former President Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, and the current president's senior vice president. They did approve the hardline judiciary chief who was linked to mass executions back in 1988. He appears to be the favorite of Ayatollah Khamenei. So Iran gives their citizens the right to choose from among candidates, but only those candidates they approve to run. Needless to say, their only real concern in their upcoming election is the possibility of low voter turnout. Israel's elections might be messy, but they're still free and open. This is The Land and the Book from Moody Radio. I'm John Geiger. Our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer, is working us through a list of current events that you've been following online and on television. But there's more to come on the broadcast, including a, a great conversation coming up next about the Book of Acts's story. Uh, Charlie takes a look at uh, your questions and the Bible's answers in segment three, and then a devotional in segment four, so lots to listen for. Archaeologists have discovered that ancient Israelis ate non-kosher fish, and some suggest this impacts our understanding of when the Pentateuch was actually written. Charlie, if I may, the story sounds a bit uh, fishy, so help us reel in the truth. Yeah, this latest study shows the benefits and the limits of archaeology. Archaeologists studied over 21,000 skeletal remains recovered at 30 archaeological sites spanning from 1550 B.C. to A.D. 640. And now that's from 100 years before the Exodus, when the Canaanites were in the land, to 600 years after the time of Jesus. And what the study discovered is that a large number of the fish bones that they studied came from non-kosher fish. Most were catfish, but they also found remains from sharks and eels alongside the kosher fish bones. Uh, during the Old Testament era, scaleless fish remains were present in modest amounts, comprising on average about 13% of the fish remains. Now that's all hard evidence. The problem comes when we try to extrapolate from that evidence. Does it show that the commands against eating fish without fins or scales hadn't yet been written? Eh, not necessarily. We know the Jewish dietary laws were strongly enforced in the time of Jesus, and yet they discovered non-kosher fish bones from that time as well. I think there's a better answer, John. It actually involves two parts. First, I believe the law of Moses was written by Moses, so I believe the laws were on the books, so to speak, throughout the period. The presence of these bones just shows that the people didn't obey the law. And that's not a surprise, since all the Old Testament prophets rebuked the people for their failure to follow God's commands. So why would we assume that they would make an exception when it came to eating fish? And second, 
I think we need to remember that there were others besides the Jews who lived in the land. Mm-hmm. The Canaanites were there before. The northern kingdom of Israel broke away from Judah and went its own way after the death of Solomon. And other groups from the Philistines to the Canaanites still lived in the land. They didn't follow the law of Moses, and it's also likely that they were a bad influence on their Jewish neighbors. Anyway, all that to say, I'm not surprised by the non-kosher fish bones. It fits everything else we know about the people during that time, including their disobedience to God's word. Thank you, Charlie. And story number four, cardiac sonography. It's a tool used by cardiologists to help diagnose and treat individuals with heart problems. Sadly, many people worldwide don't have access to professionals skilled in using this kind of equipment. But an Israeli startup called Ultrasight hopes to close that gap. Tell us about this innovation from Amazing Israel. Ultrasight is a digital health firm that focuses on cardiac imaging. They're beginning advanced clinical trials for artificial intelligence-based technology that will allow clinicians with no prior sonography training to be able to diagnose patients. Right now, cardiac sonography is a skill that takes years to acquire and that requires daily practice to stay proficient, and that greatly limits access to the technology. By making ultrasound readily available to patients anywhere, and by providing automated guidance and quality assessment to clinicians, uh, the company hopes to bring the benefits of cardiac imaging to healthcare professionals around the globe. The technology has even been chosen to accompany the next Israeli astronaut to the International Space Station in 2022 to be tested by non-medical crew members there. Simplifying ultrasound so it can be effectively used by those without extensive training is critical to providing fast, effective care. This latest innovation from Amazing Israel could make life-saving access to this technology available to a far wider audience around the world. Charlie, I'm intrigued with your devotional coming up in segment four, God's Geography Lesson. Where are we headed? Well, John, we're heading to Psalm 125, and I think people will be uh, amazed by this geography lesson. I'm looking forward to that, but up next, it's a conversation with David Bauer. Consider the book of Acts as story here on The Land and the Book. When the four Gospels end, the book of Acts begins. It's sort of a bridge between the letters that follow and the accounts of Christ that preceded. But is it possible that you and I are overlooking the full impact of the book of Acts? This is The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger, and before we open the book, that's the book of Acts, let's get creative for a moment and brainstorm ways that we can reach out to our Jewish friends and neighbors with the love of Yeshua. Your Jewish friends have all the evidence they need for Jesus as Messiah right there in the Old Testament. You've been trying to share Yeshua. How about some help from Michael Rydelnik, who's the editor of the Moody Handbook of Messianic Prophecy? Yeah, I think that we ought to really read the Psalms very carefully because often we treat the Psalms as their little individual books, 150 of them. But it's really one book, Mm -hmm. and it tells the story. Now, the book of Psalms were written David, different people wrote in Moses, but it was put together when they returned from exile, we know, because there's post-exilic psalms written after the exile. So we know it was put Mm -hmm. together after the exile. And it was designed to point to a king. There was no king on the throne of Israel. Then it was pointing forward to the future king. And uh, there's some great psalms there that point to the Messiah. And one of them in particular is Psalm 22, 
verse 16, where it talks about, they pierced my hands and my feet. So a thousand years before even the idea of crucifixion existed, the Messiah was predicted to be pierced in his hands and his feet. And that's, of course, what was fulfilled when Jesus died for our sins. Why not share Yeshua with your friend as you look at the Old Testament? Thoughts from Michael Rydelnik, who's the editor of the Moody Handbook of Messianic Prophecy, here on The Land and the Book. Dr. David Bauer is professor of inductive biblical studies and dean of the School of Biblical Interpretation for Asbury Theological Seminary. He's served on Asbury Theological Seminary's faculty since 1984. That's a long run. He's also a frequent speaker, preacher, and teacher at camps and local churches, uh, involved in organizations offering education and, I like this, support to families who adopt international children, especially international special needs children. Dr. Bauer has written the Book of Acts as story. So welcome to the land of the book, David. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here, John. You know, a couple of years ago, I did my own study in the Book of Acts, and I recall a very strong reaction when it ended. Are you ready for this? Yes, I hope so. I didn't want it to end. <laughs> I didn't. I wanted to keep going. Now, how normal is that, would you say? Well, that certainly is the uh, kind of reaction that any reader has uh, with any good read, any gripping, uh, compelling story, which the Book of Acts certainly is. Yeah. Well, a skeptic might ask, you know, the book of Acts has been around for 2,000 years, the text hasn't changed, so why do we need another book or commentary about Acts? I'm sure you've thought about this. I certainly have uh, thought about it very much before I even started writing this book. Uh, Of course, you know, that same question could be raised with regard to commentary or or any book written about any book of the Bible. Mm Mm-hmm. And uh, I would answer it in two ways. Uh, One is uh, the scriptures, and every book of the scriptures, is thick. That is to say, it has has tremendous depth. Mm -hmm. And therefore, its message is so dynamic that it has something new to say, something new to reveal about its message to every age, to every culture, to every new generation. Part of this has to do with the fact, of course, that any uh, scholar or anyone who writes about a biblical book approaches that book from his or her own context. And so you have uh, the meeting together of, of a new context and the richness of the text. This comes together then to provide new insights to the meaning of these books or these passages. Dr. David Bauer is a senior New Testament scholar and teacher who helps students understand the historical, literary, and theological issues of the book of Acts. You've written that Acts is a narrative. It presents a consistent story form uh, from end to beginning. Surprisingly, readers often have not taken full advantage of this observation as they approach the book of Acts. If that's true, then how do most readers take in the book of Acts? I believe that most readers come to the book of Acts with the expectation that it will do really little more than tell them about facts pertaining to events uh, that happened at the beginning of the church. That is uh, a woefully narrow and thin way of approaching the book of Acts and does not actually reflect, I think, the purpose of the book of Acts purpose of the book of Acts is reflected in its narrative form, in the consideration that Luke, who is, of course, the author of not only his gospel, but the book of Acts, has actually crafted a story. 
these are not just a series of events uh, that he describes, but he puts them all together in his own way Mm -hmm. as a story in order to communicate his own message, his own spiritual and really theological uh, message uh, to the church. Well, how would you say then that uh, Acts does corroborate the validity of the Gospels? And how does going to Israel, you've been there yourself, what does that do for corroborating the validity of the Gospels? Well, I'm not sure that the Gospels need the book of Acts for confirmation. Uh, The book of Acts certainly continues the story of the Gospels. With regard to the historical reliability of the book of Acts, uh, to say that the book of Acts is is a story is not to suggest at all that it is not reliable history, uh, but it is to say that it is more than simply the recounting of events. Mm-hmm. It's a matter of Luke presenting this history, which is a holy history. In other words, it continues the holy history, as it were, that we have in the Gospels, presents in such a way as to want to show us what the significance of these events are, uh, not only for the people who are mentioned in the book, or for even for the original readers, but the significance of these events for us as contemporary readers. Dr. Bauer has written the book of Acts as story. He joins us today on The Land and the Book. Give us a practical example, a passage from Acts, that we would see differently if we read Acts as story. Well, there are still very many. Matter of fact, that would be true. That would have an effect upon uh, the reading of any passage in Acts. But um, let me uh, just give one example um, the story of the choosing, the selection of the seven, often they are referred to as deacons, uh, they're in chapter 6. If this is read as part of the broader story, it will make a great difference in terms of how one understands that. And I'll just mention two ways broadly. One is, coming at it from a kind of a modern assumptions, we might think that the task of serving tables which was given to the seven so-called deacons there, is really grunt work. Yeah. But if you read that as part of the story, you find that in the preceding couple of chapters, at the end of chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5, uh, that the distribution of goods in the community, which was really the responsibility of the apostles, is a mark, really an emblem, of the apostles' authority. So that when the apostles in chapter 6 suggest that these seven be tasked with the distribution of food, it's not a matter of pushing onto them uh, grunt work, but actually a passing on of authority Hmm. uh, to these seven. So that the apostles are actually taking the initiative to give up some of their authority, uh, give it to this other group for the sake of equity and of um, peace uh, within the church, which of course was being threatened there. Uh, by that uh, murmuring of the Hebrews against yeah. the Hellenists that is mentioned there at the beginning of chapter 6. Yeah. You, uh, you spent a long time studying and researching this text. Any surprises? I mean, uh, you're a Bible scholar, a teacher, and I'm asking what jumped out at you? The uh, thing that really struck me is that there are certain tensions within this story. Uh, but that the tensions actually contribute to the richness of the story itself. For example, in 1.8, the famous statement from Jesus in 1.8, uh, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, all Judea and Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth or to the ends of the earth. Uh, it's interesting that that is spoken primarily to the apostles, to the eleven, mm-hmm. 
And uh, yet, when you go ahead and read the rest of the book, you find that the 11 apostles are not involved in, in terms of the story of the book, are really not involved in the proclamation of the gospel to the end of the earth. That is to say, in chapters 13 through 28, which present the going out of the gospel to the end of the earth. Uh, So the promise of witness is actually fulfilled by those who do not actually uh, receive that promise there in verse 8. Witness in the book of Acts is primarily a witness on the part of the apostles to the Christ events. But witness then is understood later in the book of Acts as witnessing Hmm. to the apostles' witness, as proclaiming to the world, when I say the apostolic faith, the apostolic witness, the, the witness of those who actually experienced the ministry of Jesus. Dr. David Bauer is a frequent speaker, preacher, and teacher at camps and local churches, uh, as involved in organizations offering education and support to families who adopt international children, especially international special needs children. He's written the book Acts as Stories. What do you see as being a sort of mega moment in the book of Acts that we either minimize or just somehow overlook or, or possibly even misunderstand? Well, you mentioned, you know, that as you read the book of Acts, uh, you want the story to continue. Yes. I would point out, though, that there's a sense in which Luke is suggesting the story does continue. In other words, uh, the book of Acts ends there in chapter 28, but the story continues. You, have, you don't have closure, really. You have, of course, the book ends with Paul in prison for two years, about to make appeal to Caesar, but we don't know, you know how that turns out. And this is one way, I think, of the writer wanting to suggest that readers actually live into the story. The, the story continues into our own time. Fascinating. And in a sense, we need to determine how we are going to live into it, whether we are going to live into it in a way that's worthy of the characters, the actors who are described there or not. When we fail to read Acts as story, what problems do we invite? I think it it invites misunderstanding of the text. If I may give just a specific example of this. Sure. In the book of Acts, you have a series of conflicts that arise within the church, each one of which is resolved. And with the resolution of each one, actually uh, the church and the mission of the church advances so that the conflict is resolved, leads to the advancement of the mission of the church. You have that time and time again. The last conflict that you have, though, in the book of Acts is there at the end of chapter 15. It's the separation of Paul and Barnabas. That is the only conflict in the book of Acts that does not end with resolution. There is no reconciliation that's mentioned in the book of Acts. You have to ask why Luke records this. Luke includes this story of the separation, the sad separation of Paul and Barnabas, which is really not a good thing, in order to indicate that these characters, as powerful as they are and as great a ministry as they have, are not perfect. Uh, That really, uh, the advance of the gospel, all the good things that happen in the book of Acts, come not as a result of of the quality of the people who are described, but the sovereign power of the exalted Christ, even to work through unfortunate circumstances, because, of course, there's no resolution of that conflict between Paul and Barnabas. But nevertheless, the sovereign Christ works to advance the gospel, even through that separation. You have not one missionary journey, which was anticipated, but two 
that come out of that unresolved conflict. How would you say a layperson could effectively use this book, Dr. Bauer? Well, this book is written in such a way that it, it is meant to speak into the classroom and to be used in that context. Uh, but I wrote it also in such a way that those who have really not been initiated into biblical studies should be able to understand it quite well, quite clearly. And, of course, this emphasis upon what Luke is trying to communicate to the church through how he puts his story together is relevant for everyone within the church. Mia, off-road here for just a moment. Do you have a favorite story in the book of Acts? What is the all-time bring-a-smile-to-your-face story as you think of that book? My favorite story in the book of Acts would be that of the sons of Sceva being overcome by uh, the demon there in the 19th chapter of the book of Acts. That, I think, is rather a humorous story in a way. Uh, They were attempting to overcome the demons, and the demons overcome them uh, in such a way, of course, that that they're stripped and uh, shamed and this kind of thing because of the sense that the name of Jesus can be used magically. Uh, So they were attempting to exercise this demon through the name of Jesus, which, of course, does have power over demons when the name of Jesus is espoused and and articulated by people who actually believe in him. Right. But to take the name of Jesus and to treat it as kind of a a magical talisman results in uh, consequences that that one does not anticipate and uh, actually um, comically reveal uh, just how useless that kind of misuse of the name of Jesus is. Fascinating. Well, Dr. Bauer, our time is gone. Thank you for your work on this book, Acts a Story, a link to that and uh, to you as well at our website, thelandandthebook.org. A fresh set of Bible questions is on the way on our next segment here on The Land and the Book. You're going to be glad you stuck around for this next segment on The Land and the Book. We're looking at questions, Bible questions, prophecy questions, questions about Israel, and they're always welcome uh, from our listeners. Maybe you'd like to email us yours. I'll share our email address in just a minute, but uh, right now I want to say hello again to Dr. Charlie Dyer. Hey, John, this is a fun time. I enjoy the Q&A segment. I sure do, too. Let's start with Lori's question, who takes us to Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 28, where a Gentile woman is seeking Jesus to heal her daughter of demons. Jesus replies that he did not come except to the house of Israel. Well, later the Jewish people did reject him. So is this the first time Jesus healed a Gentile? Did he wait to start healing more Gentiles until after he was rejected uh, from other people? Well, I think we need to put this encounter in a broader context. In Matthew and Mark, they both record that Jesus had withdrawn into the districts of Tyre and Sidon, where he encounters this Canaanite woman and her demon-possessed daughter. And, you know, at first it sounds like Jesus is giving a very uncaring response to her. uh, She cried for help. He didn't answer. The disciples want him to send her away. Uh, He responds to them, and by extension to her, by saying, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. She then begged for help, and that's when he said, you know, it's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now, the key to the event is to recognize his primary ministry at his first coming was to Israel. He came as Israel's Messiah, and that's the focus of his ministry was to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. This woman was a Canaanite and wasn't part of the covenant family, but 
Her response demonstrated her faith in Jesus as both the Son of God and Messiah. You know, she said, yes, Lord, but even the dogs feed on the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Now, she wasn't asking that the blessing be taken away from Israel, only that a small portion of it be extended to her as a Gentile. And in response, Jesus immediately healed her daughter. Uh, But I do notice carefully that context. In a Gentile setting, Jesus extended blessings to this woman of faith. We're not sure if this is the first miracle like this, because remember, the centurion's servant, who may have been a Gentile, was healed by Jesus in Capernaum. By the way, this incident of the Canaanite woman is followed by an extended ministry to Gentiles in the region of the Decapolis, where Jesus fed the 4,000. The two miracles together, this woman and then the feeding of the 4,000, are intended to show that Jesus' compassion extended beyond Israel to encompass the entire world. So I I see this section as a beautiful picture of how Jesus met the physical and spiritual needs of both Jews and Gentiles alike. Nancy takes us to the Old Testament asking, what is the Urim and Thummim? Why were these used? What purpose did they have? Thanks for helping me understand. Yeah, the Urim and Thummim were either different colored stones or stones that were inscribed in some way with an appropriate word, and they were placed inside the high priest's breastplate. When someone would come and ask God for a specific answer to a question, the priest would reach into the breastplate and pull out one of the stones. Apparently, one stone would indicate a positive answer to the question. The other would indicate a negative answer. It was one of the different means God used to speak to Israel. God would use the Urim and Thummim by superintending through what otherwise might seem like a mere chance to make his will clear. We might compare it to someone today flipping a coin to get one of two possible answers, but having God work to make sure the answer was always what he intended. Now, in addition to this means, God also raised up prophets, uh, and he gave his word to them in visions and dreams and direct commands. So in the case of prophets, God initiated the revelation by telling them what to say. In the case of the Urim and Thummim, an individual came to the high priest seeking a specific answer to a question and having God reply to their inquiry by providing a yes or no answer. April writes, My Old Testament professor told us that the traditional number of Israelites coming out of Egypt in the Exodus account, two to three million, was extremely inflated. His reasoning for this is that the Nile area could not have supported that number of slaves. Also, Israel at that time could not support that many people. And secondly, that the word for thousands in Numbers chapter 1 could or should be translated groups. Just something I've always wondered about. Any insight would be very helpful. Thanks. Yeah, and I also have some good friends who believe the word elef, which is the word for thousand, should be translated as something other than the actual number 1,000. They believe it might be better translated as groupings or clans. In fact, in Micah 5, 2, you know, but as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrata, too little to be among the clans of Judah. It literally says too little to be among the thousands of Judah. But the word elef there could be translated clans. However, I take the number of Israelite men at the time of the Exodus literally as being 603,550. Uh, that would put the total number of Israelites, including women and children, probably somewhere between two and three million. I don't see a problem with the land supporting that larger number. Certainly, Egypt today supports many times that number, and so does Israel. However, uh, there's one major reason I take the number of Israelites literally. So follow along here. You may even want to write these references down. In Exodus 30, verses 12 and 13, God gave a command to Moses. He said, when you take a census of the Israelites uh, and count the men up who are going out for war, uh, you're to number them. Each who crosses over to those already counted is to give a half shekel according to the sanctuary shekel. That is, there was a half shekel tax on each of the men who's counted in the census. Then in Exodus 38, 25 to 26, we're told the results. 
the silver obtained from the community uh, by those who were counted in the census was 100 talents and 1,775 shekels. So put all that together, well, we know that a talent was equal to 3,000 shekels. So 100 talents would be the equivalent of 300,000 shekels. Add in the remaining 1,775, and the total amount of silver collected was 301,775 shekels. But since each male was to contribute half a shekel, you double that number and you end up with 603,550 males who paid that tax. So here's the bottom line. It's possible for Elif to mean something other than 1,000, but that isn't true of weights and measures. The 100 talents of silver and the 1,775 extra shekels of silver are specific amounts. And when you weigh the total together, uh, it comes out to match the number 603,550. And as a result, it seems like we should take that as a literal number. Very interesting take on that. Appreciate your insights, Charlie. You can email your question to the land and the book at moody.edu. Marianne takes us to the third chapter of Lamentations, a book I'm studying right now in my uh, personal Bible reading, verses 18, 21, 24, and 29. There are three different Hebrew words used for our English word hope. I'm somewhat familiar with the Hebrew word tikva, but not the other words. I suspect your answer will add richness to chapter 3 of Lamentations. What do you say? The word Jeremiah uses in verse 18 is the noun tochelet, which has the idea of hope or expectation. It comes from a verb that means to wait for or to put hope in. And then in verses 21 and 24, Jeremiah uses the verb form of that same word rather than the noun. But it's still the same basic word as in verse 18. Finally, in verse 29, he does use tikva, the word that you're already familiar with. So in essence, Jeremiah really only uses two Hebrew words though for the one, he uses both the verb form and the noun form of the word, and this word is a synonym of tikva. Prophecy question from Jean. Will the battle of Gog and Magog happen before or after the rapture? Uh, I believe it happens after the rapture, during the first part of the tribulation period. Now, I, I say that for two reasons. First, the battle is connected with God again working to reveal himself to the Jewish people in a special way. For example, in chapter 39, verse 22 of Ezekiel, God says, from that day forward, the house of Israel will know that I am the Lord their God. In verse 25, God connects the battle with a time when he'll bring Jacob back from captivity and will have compassion on all the people of Israel. Now, in Daniel 9, 24 to 27, God provides a prophetic timeline of events related to your people, the Jews, and your holy city, Jerusalem. The final part of that timeline, the seven-year tribulation, primarily focuses on the fulfillment of God's predictions related to Israel, culminating in the return of the Messiah. Since Ezekiel 38 and 39 focuses on those events, I think it's logical to assume it's occurring during that same future period in general. Now, that leads to the second point, though. When the battle of Ezekiel 38 and 39 begins, Israel is said to be back in the land and living in safety. Now, that best fits the first half of that future seven-year tribulation period when the Antichrist has made a covenant with Israel that appears to give them peace. Now, midway through, he breaks that covenant, and a time of tremendous persecution against the Jewish people will take place. In fact, Jesus said in Matthew 24, it was going to be a time of great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world till now, and never to be equaled again. So rather than living in the land in safety, the second half of the tribulation is a time when Israel is going to experience tremendous persecution. Now, because of the change from peace to persecution at the midpoint of the tribulation, it seems best to place the Battle of Gog and Magog early in that seven-year period during the time of peace. 
And that's a look at questions that have come into our email inbox. You know, yours is always welcome. You can send that question that you've been puzzling over to the land and the book at moody.edu. The land and the book at moody.edu. You know, we've covered a lot of ground today. Maybe you'd like to hear today's questions again. I, I've enjoyed them. Uh, you can always do that when you check out our podcast. It's available at our website, thelandandthebook.org. Thelandandthebook.org. Charlie's devotional is next here on The Land and the Book. From Moody Radio, it's The Land and the Book. You've joined us for our final segment. Charlie takes us to a portion of Scripture and then delivers a beautiful devotional on that passage. Charlie, my question for you at the outset, when you were a kid, how good were you at geography? Did you like it or did you hate it? I liked geography. I was one of those odd ducks who really enjoyed geography, and it's stuck with me my whole life. Apparently, because your devotional today is titled God's Geography Lesson. Where are we going? Uh, We are heading to Jerusalem, but we're going to look at the city through God's eyes. Before we get to that view, we're going to look at the land of Israel through the eyes of an average person like you and me who's been there. And this is their Holy Land experience. My name is Elizabeth Lightbody, and my Holy Land experience was one that I hadn't really anticipated would be so colorful. I remember so often that uh, Dr. Dyer would say, when you go to the Holy Land, your scripture goes from black and white to color. And I really don't think I believed him (laughs) as he uh, would say that. But I must say that as I began to read scripture, my mind would always go back to those events and where Jesus had been, the picking up a stone and thinking that uh, that was the very valley that David had picked up a stone to kill Goliath. But it reminds me again and again that it was God's hand that gave strength to David as he flung that and killed a giant. Thinking about giants in my own life, am I allowing Jesus to be the one that takes the stones that are around me, his scriptures, and slays the the giants that I I struggle with daily. I highly recommend the uh, trip to Israel. It'll change your life. Dr. Charlie Dyer calls it God's geography lesson, and he's taking us to Psalm 125. Looking forward to your devotional today, Charlie. Uh, Thanks, John. Uh, Now, you and everyone else, watch your step. Okay. Uh, We're walking out one of the gates of the old city of Jerusalem, and you don't want to slip and fall. Now, my concern has little to do with the two-way traffic crowding through the gate or with the slick limestone walkways or or with the busy street we're about to cross. I'm more worried about your reputation. After all, this is the dung gate, and you don't want to go home and have to tell your friends you slipped and fell at the dung gate. That could be embarrassing. Now, a friend of mine actually fell and broke his leg running out the dung gate, and none of us ever let him forget it. Today's walk takes us outside the old walled city of Jerusalem to the original city of Jerusalem. Many visitors are surprised when they learn that the current old city walls are only approaching their 500th birthday. In America, something 500 years old sounds ancient. But in a city already around when Abraham walked through the land 4,000 years ago, the 500-year-old walls are relatively recent. 
Let's pause for just a second and look at these walls. They extend for nearly three miles around the old city of Jerusalem, rising to a height of 50 feet. But as impressive as the walls are, they failed to enclose the entire area that was once the biblical city of Jerusalem. Part of the western hill, now mistakenly called Mount Zion, was left outside the walls. And so was the hill on which the original city of Jerusalem once stood, and that's our destination today. We've come to the City of David Archaeological Park, so let's head up to the observation platform. There's much we can see and do here, but our time is limited, so I want us to take in the view. Let's start by looking down at the original City of David itself. We're actually on the highest part of the small hill that was once the original city of Jerusalem. As you can see, it was quite small. In fact, the Bible refers to it as the stronghold of David, which is an apt description. But look further to the south. See that hill rising up in the distance? It's sometimes called the Hill of Evil Council because it's the traditional spot where Caiaphas and his colleagues decided to arrest Jesus. Now, turn to the east. The deep valley in front of us is the Kidron Valley, and the mountain just beyond it is the Mount of Olives. Like the Hill of Evil Council, the Mount of Olives is higher than the platform on which we're standing. Now, turn again. Look north. The Temple Mount and the gray dome of the Al-Aqsa Mosque stare down at us. From here, more than anywhere else, we get a true idea of how much higher in elevation the Temple Mount is. Finally, turn one last time and look west. And there, rising above us, is the western hill, the one mistakenly called Mount Zion today. In fact, no matter which way we turn, the mountains surrounding us are higher than the hill on which we're standing. Jerusalem was built on this hill because it had the water supply, but the hill itself wasn't nearly as high as any of the surrounding mountains. And now it's time to open our Bibles to Psalm 125, still another of the songs of ascent that were gathered together to be sung by the pilgrims who traveled to Jerusalem for the three festivals when Israel was to appear before the Lord. This psalm begins with two geography lessons from God. The first lesson is found in verse 1. Those who trust in the Lord are as Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. The Mount Zion in view here is not the modern Mount Zion, that western hill. Rather, the psalmist is referring to the original city of Jerusalem, along with the adjacent Temple Mount. That would encompass the spot where we're standing and the area to the north and south. The permanence of these hills is a reminder of the permanence of God's care for those who put their trust in Him. The second geography lesson follows immediately afterward in verse 2. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds His people from this time forth and forever. It's almost as if the psalmist is asking the people to stand where we're now standing and to turn in a complete circle while scanning the horizon. No matter which way we turn, we're looking up at hills whose summits are higher. The original city of Jerusalem was indeed surrounded by mountains, and in the same way God promised to surround His people to protect them. We can have an unshakable security because God provides an unbroken wall of protection. But we have to ask ourselves, is this true? If God has promised to provide such security and protection, why do bad things occasionally happen to those who are His followers? From Job to Jesus, 
to the early apostles, many sincere, godly men and women have experienced times of stress and pain. And that's the key point to note here. The psalmist isn't saying that those who follow God will never have problems. Rather, he's saying that those who put their trust in God won't have their faith shaken when times of testing come, because God will continue to be with them even through those difficult times. Now, I say this because of verse 3. In context, the psalmist says God will continue to uphold his people so that the scepter of wickedness will not rest upon the land of the righteous, that the righteous may not put forth their hands to do wrong. God will hold evil within bounds, lest his followers lose heart and turn to evil themselves. The message of this psalm is similar to that of 1 Corinthians 10.13. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, that you may be able to endure it. Trials will come but they'll be regulated by a God who is constantly watching over his followers to make sure they don't become overwhelmed by these difficulties. The psalmist ends with his wish or prayer to God. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good and those who are upright in their hearts. He asks God to bless those who are spiritually and morally upright and to lead away or remove the doers of iniquity, those causing all the problems. So what can we learn from our time at the original city of David? Uh, Maybe it's this. We all face times in our lives when it seems like the only way to get ahead is to cut corners, lower our standards, and go with the flow because, we're told, only chumps and losers do what's right. And it's during those times when we need to lift our eyes spiritually and take a look at God's heavenly horizon. Those who commit to the moral absolutes of God's word have an anchor that will keep them rock solid in a shifting moral climate. And they can also depend on God's presence and his protection, which is as certain as the mountains that surround the original city of Jerusalem. Thank you, Charlie. Reassuring to know those mountains aren't going anywhere, which means God's presence and protection really are just that certain. If you'd like to hear today's devotional again or the entire broadcast, it's available online at thelandandthebook.org. We recommend the podcast, by the way, a great option for you to stream or share with somebody else who can't listen via a traditional radio station. You can share The Land and the Book with anybody around the world if you'll just let them know about that podcast at thelandandthebook.org. Our email address, if you've got something to say, we want to hear it, is thelandandthebook at moody.edu. The Land and the Book at Moody.edu. On behalf of Charlie Dyer, Dan Anderson, and myself, John Geiger, I want to say thank you for listening. Hope you'll come back next week for another edition of The Land and the Book. You know, The Land and the Book is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute.